yeah, I did a lot of traipsing. I mean, I do a lot of traipsing anyway. And as soon as you start exploring a place, you just discover the most extraordinary things about it. Hello and welcome to the Country Life Podcast. I'm your host, James Fisher, and this week I have someone with me who is extremely, extremely intelligent. It is, of course, Professor Fiona Stafford, Professor of English Language and Literature and a Fellow of Somerville College at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you very much. That's rather a kind of intimidating opening for me. I shall have to be on my on my best behaviour for this podcast. Well, I can see I can see the sort of wall of books behind you. So I mean, I, I feel feel it's very uh, very much deserved. So let's start off with just a quick question that I like to ask pretty much everyone on this podcast. Can you sort of talk about where you were born, where you grew up, where you sort of first came into contact with the great English countryside? Yes, um, you you can. I was actually born um, in an RAF married quarter um, and I was there for three months and then moved apparently over to Aden, which of course I don't remember anything about at all. But as a child, uh, we moved quite regularly because of my father's work. Um, but my mother was always very keen on the countryside. Uh, so we were often not living on a base. Um, when we were posted out to Holland, for example, we were living in the middle of rural rural Holland, South Limburg. Um, and then as soon as uh, my father stopped moving, we settled um, in rural Lincolnshire. And I spent my formative years in a very tiny hamlet in the Lincoln, Lincolnshire Wolds. Um, so I've, I've spent most of my time living in the country, actually. Oh, very nice. But not the same place. <laughs> Just moving around, moving around. Yeah. It says here in my notes that you wrote a uh, dissertation on RAF slang. Would you be able to tell me a bit about what RAF slang is? Oh, that was a very long time yeah. ago. That's when I was a, a student at Leicester University. Um, and I was, yeah, it was a part of a language course. Um, and it, it, I think having grown up in an RAF family, I was I became aware that a lot of the expressions my father used were not the same sort of expressions as other people's yeah other people's um fathers use so i was interested in that and then um i wondered to what extent his RAF slang which had developed during the second world war because he, he joined out when he was very young mm. um was still was still current so i did a comparison between uh, contemporary um RAF language uh, and the sorts of expressions my father used um so that's what it was about really oh, very cool very cool um i've got a friend who's left the army three or four years ago and he still speaks almost exclusively in acronyms it's actually very very difficult to understand what he's talking about half the time um so with that sort of you know uh dissertation on RAF slang is that sort of how you first came interested in sort of the English language to the point I mean you know you're a sort of expert on Burns Woodworth what's Woodworth Wordsworth Coleridge Keats you know is that how you sort of first got interested well I think we I was fortunate because I grew up in a house where there were books of poetry around mm. uh mum and dad both both were interested in that and i i suppose moving a lot as a child living um in in holland for two years i became i was very conscious that the way we spoke was different <laughs> from, from from our neighbors um so i think i think i just grew up being interested in in language um and then i did an english degree uh which 
you know, obviously gave me a bit more knowledge um, of of it. Uh, but it, it's something I've always always been interested in: the way people speak, the way people communicate with each with each other. Um, and I realise now I've always been interested in nonverbal communication, all sorts of ways that people make themselves understood, um, and, and how they use words or don't use words. So, what what sort of a Nonverbal communication, or would you sort of be referring to sort of like nods, eyebrows, that kind of thing? Smile. Smile. <laughs> it's one of the main ones, isn't it? It's pretty international. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're if you're growing up and you're surrounded by people who speak in Dutch, um, you know, other children, you can still you can still communicate quite quite well, even if your um, you know your vocabulary is rather limited. Very good. Well, we're here to talk about some of the more sort of traditional uh, verbal communication, which is some of the books you've written. So. One of my favourites was The Long, Long Life of Trees, which was a absolutely storming read, but I'm particularly hit, uh, interested in your new book, which is called Time and Tide, The Long, Long Life of Landscape. Could you give us a sort of quick whiz through what the uh, what the book is about? Yes, um, it's really a kind of uh, exploration, if you like, of um of 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 landscape um and seascape. Um so it covers Lots of different areas within um, within the British Isles, um, and I'm interested in things that surprise you when you're out for a walk um, that just look a little bit out of place, um, and those surprises, um, if you then follow them up, um, can take you on very interesting journeys, not just through place but deeper into the place, um, in into time. It makes you conscious of the past the previous generations who've lived in the same place and how how things might have looked very different 100 years ago 200 years ago longer ago and and also how they might look in the future so it's a meditation on um place in terms of uh, the passage of time as well as actually the physical features of the landscape and the wildlife um and and you know just what everything looks like yeah i found it very interesting the sort of you know obviously there's lots of discussions both at Country Life magazine and the, and the wider world about sort of conservation heritage you know keeping things the way they are or trying to sort of bring things back to the way they were whether that's rewilding but you know that kind of thing and I just found I found it very interesting how your book is sort of going to focus on or focuses on how things have changed or you know almost continuously over time you know we're so I feel like sometimes we're so sort of so focused on you know oh, we have to you know maintain this this field exactly the way it was without ever thinking that it's actually changed maybe five or six times throughout you know the course of history and what what we might see as something that needs to be protected actually is in itself different from what it you know originally was um so what was the sort of inspiration for you to actually sit down and write this book um well these are things i've been thinking about for a long time uh, and exactly that point really that you've just made about a, an assumption that if something is disappearing we must try and stop that happening and sometimes of course i think that's absolutely right that we should yeah um but other times um actually uh you know the, it, what we might think of as a norm is relatively recent and i think working on trees made me very aware of that because um I would have conversations with people who are in forestry and they would be talking about these, you know, what we think of as these islands, Michelin's, you know, 
way back in prehistory, <laughs> even before the continents divided. And that, that sense of time and therefore the difficulty in deciding which tree is a native or not, um, I found that really, really interesting. And it made me think about you know, my assumption about what, what's normal, yeah. which probably is, you know, probably fairly recent. So so I was very interested in that. And and also, um, I think it, it, it allows for hope for the future, which again, I'm very, very concerned about. There, there's so much worry about the environmental crisis and the climate crisis quite rightly, um, but it doesn't have to be just one-way traffic that there was something that was all fixed and static and now it's going away, mm. and that's and that's irreversible. And um, you know, because things have always been changing, there's no real reason why they shouldn't change again. Um, and and you know, tree planting projects obviously help with that. But there's one chapter in the book about the history of red kites, um, and that's that's a very interesting case of a, a bird that was on the verge of extinction and now has regenerated. Yeah. Um, and our sense of what might be normal about a red kite, you know, was actually very well for me. It was it was really very much based on, you know, the nineteen eighties, I, th- I think, and and the state of red kites then. And then when I did some more history and, and reading, I realised that at one time they'd been very common. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be very very common again. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you depending on where you are in the country, they're considered more than common. They're almost like pigeons now, aren't they? Yeah, like my girlfriend's from Buckinghamshire, and she. She talks about how, you know, you can't move without bumping into a red kite because she says the worst part is it's because people feed them. You know, they just leave things of food out. So you suddenly walk into your garden and there's about 10 giant birds of prey sitting and they're staring at you waiting for a chippy tea. Yeah, yeah. And they're huge as well. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not small animals. They are not. They are not. If I'm out with, you know, one of my dogs is quite little, a little obtuse terrier. And if there's a red hot kite sweeping about, I do think, well, I know they don't, in theory, sweep down on on, on um, wild prey. But you do think, oh, I think I'll just keep her on the yeah, leash yeah, for now. Yeah, just hang on. Absolutely, just hang on. Exactly. So, um, what... What sort of uh, how helpful was it? You know, you're, you're a great scholar of like the likes of Keats. You know, they're obviously very well known. You know, someone like Keats is obviously very well known for his sort of relationship to nature in the in his works. Is that something that you were sort of trying to do? As were you sort of trying to combine those two passions in your life in the book? Yes, and I think it it, it wasn't so much trying to combine them. It's just if you read a lot of um, English literature mm-hmm. and romantic literature, poetry. Um, it just conditions the way you think and the way you look at things. So um, I quite often find lines of poetry running in my head just because you know that's what yeah. I that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, so I think it influences the way you then see see the world. I mean, this is one of the things I'm interested in in the book. It's how different people see the countryside um and you know all the people i i work on when i'm doing my kind of day job as a a literature professor um they all see the countryside in particular ways and that helps you think about the way you do as well um so so yeah they're 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 very much they go hand in hand i think what was it um what was it like researching this book did you manage to sort of get out and traipse across great britain what were some of the favorite places you visited yeah, I did a lot of traipsing. I mean, I do a lot of traipsing yeah. anyway. So in a way, this is uh, um, it was just very nice to have a 
you know, a kind of reason to write up some of my traipsing um, where, when I was not actually in motion. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned John Keats. So one of the very exciting places I went was Fingal's Cave um, and the Isle of Staffa. So that um, that meant going up to Scotland and getting a getting a boat um, across across from Mull. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, and then, yeah, I've been to all sorts of places, um, and and some some are places that don't look very promising, perhaps. Um, for example, the first chapter is about Whittlesea Mere, which is still marked on a map, but that's in the fens. But when you get there, there is no there's no lake because it was drained away yeah, um, yeah. in the 19th century. Um, so that that was a very interesting place and totally totally different from Thingol's Cave, um, Sherwood Forest again. Very interesting. I mean, I, I always like places with lots, lots of trees, but I was trying to broaden my mm. broaden my focus and not make it all about trees. <laughs> too tree heavy. <laughs> exactly. Um, talk about weird caves and disused airfields. Would you be able to describe uh, to the listener what you mean by those? Yes. Well, weird caves. I mean, Fingal's Cave is very unusual. But I also um, went down into the Clearwell Caves um, in the Forest of Dean, uh, and again, I don't really like being underground, mm. uh, but I was very interested in the lives of people who just on a daily basis were going going down and and, and mining, and it, it was um, it was iron ore that they were they were looking for. Um, so I, I wanted to go and look at that, and that's so different from a, a sea cave. So quite a lot of the chapters they speak to each other, though though not directly. Um, so. I'm, I'm kind of exploring the idea of what a cave is and why why people go into it. Um, but the disused airfields, um, well, that that was one of the that was one of the um, cases where, going back sort of eighty years, that so much of the British landscape changed very very rapidly. So I was interested in that um, because obviously um, with the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, there were just airfields everywhere, yeah. um, especially especially Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, Norfolk, the the East Coast, especially, but but all sorts of places. So I was interested in that, and I was also interested in which ones have now just disappeared completely. Some of them have been repurposed, mm. and, and some of them um, there are just bits left. So there's a wood um, near Finmere, um, which probably North Oxfordshire, yeah. um, where there are just bits of ruined building and underground uh, shelters and they're just there uh, covered with dead leaves and they're very very atmospheric um and there's a so there's a there's a whole chapter on disused airfields um and these are again it's part of this sort of sense of what was normal what was in place and then what now seems really very out of place um uh, and so I was, I was exploring that, and and as soon as you start exploring a place, you just, just discover the most extraordinary things about it. Um, well, yeah, so I grew up in Suffolk, and there's constant there's just airfields all over the place, so there used to be anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you sort of I always noticed when it gets quite dry, you often see you know you often, people often talk about sort of you know Roman ruins that you can see sort of outlined in fields, but for us, it's mostly just runways, runways and hangar buildings with all the remnants thereof. Um, what so yeah, I like how you you mentioned there that you sort of you find you know you focus on a subject and then you sort of suddenly find more and more about it. What what did you learn while researching this book that you didn't know before? That what would be a sort of key takeaway from producing it? Oh, just um, 
the extent to which the the past is not is never really past. Yeah. It's still it's still with us. It's just a question of 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 looking and and reading and thinking about it. And there are certain places where you feel it very very strongly. Uh, disused airfields a very good example. You, know, you can just be walking through a wood and then you suddenly are very aware of the lives that you know have been there, have been living there, been very active, and 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 that sort of strong sense of of you know not being alone is 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 something that I was I was really aware of. Mm. Um, but uh, so so that that will be one of the main things I think. Do you think do you think we as a sort of society don't really maybe appreciate our landscapes as much as we should in the sense that we don't really know enough about them or like their histories? Well, I I mean it sounds a bit judgmental to say people don't know enough about it. It felt very judgmental to say, so I sort of slightly regret it, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't criticism of you. But I, I, I think what I would say is that I think there's a just a, a wealth that's there which is not immediately obvious um, and that people who, you know, maybe don't sort of see the point of the countryside, yes. they don't see the point of a walk because they think, well, there's nothing there. Um, actually, um, if they were approaching it and they knew a little bit more about what was there, they might find it, you know, absolutely fascinating. I mean, I find it quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, there, there's a good example is um, there's a village in Buckinghamshire, which you might be familiar with, actually, um, called Brill. Yeah. Um, and I remember going there for the first time with my children years ago, and there's a nice there's a nice windmill and there are nice views and there's a nice ice cream van and things. And there are these amazing kind of um, hollows in the ground in the hill. And I just assumed it was a lost village. It was just my assumption that that's what it was. And then much later, someone told me, oh, no, 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 they're disused clay pits. And as soon as I knew they were disused clay pits, well, that made perfect sense. And it made sense of the whole village because it's mostly built of bricks, yeah. which is quite unusual. And and everything started to to sort of move and make sense. Um and, you know, made me then go and look at the buildings and I could see that lots of them were handmade bricks and, you know, they all had individual um character. Um so so you know, that's a good example really, yeah. I think, of how just one little thing that you hear about how things used to be makes you see everything quite differently. And that and that's very exciting. And it also I think it sort of puts puts our present moment into perspective. So, you know, when you were walking around we tend to sort of think that what you see, mm. that's it. But actually you realise where you're seeing because of how you how you see things, yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? absolutely. Whereas actually, someone else is seeing things quite differently, and 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 it, you know, I, th- I think that's really, really helpful actually to put your own own view and perspective, and that's why it's a first person book. Yeah, um, not because I wanted everyone to be thinking about me, but because it, it, I'm so aware that someone else walking along will see quite different things, and they might be seeing more interesting things than me, and might be seeing better and in a more informed way. But yeah, no. But at least they at least they are seeing something that is a bit more than just a binary what is in front of their eyes, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, it's it's an interesting debate that you know we have in countryside circles the whole time of sort of you know protecting our our, our green heritage. Oh, this you yeah. know we have to keep this field looking this way, as I've previously mentioned. But you know, I think I think it would certainly help the debate a lot more if people understood more as why things are the way that they are you know i really like that sort of analogy about the uh brill village you know 
once you realize that it's as you say close to a sort of clay mine then the whole the whole context sits a lot better when you're walking through the english countryside and you look at hedges and you sort of and fields and you might stop and think wow this is fantastic but actually this is an entirely man-made creation it yeah. sort of com- completely rewrites your or in my, certainly in my case my sort of understanding of the countryside and our, our green heritage which i think is quite interesting it also means i'm very very boring company when i go for walks because i'm just constantly rabbiting on saying oh actually did you know that a squirrel used to be able to hop from land's end to john o'groats without touching the floor Have you ever heard that well i think that's really interesting you see i don't think that's boring <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah i just i just find it interesting because you know we hear so often about you know rightly or wrongly you know this is the countryside and it looks that way because it's a workplace Yes, it is. That's exactly right. So with these conversations of restoring things or protecting things, it's kind of, you know, as your book says, it's like, where do you where do you actually want to restore it back to? Because if you restore it a hundred years ago, it looks quite different. If you restore it a thousand years ago, it looks completely, completely different. 10,000 years ago, everything is trees. So, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no sort of obvious in my mind sort of place, I guess is what, is what I'm saying. No, I think, I think that's right. And I think kind of being away of the way places evolve and often they're enriched by these different generations of, of people doing different things and have, having different needs. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, really a kind of enrichment of our understanding of the countryside, uh, really. Um, it's, it's not that I'm at all against conservation. <laughs> on, on the, I mean, either. On the contrary. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think... It is helpful to see the countryside not as something that's kind of just an unchanging idol, which is yeah. how, it, how it's seen. And I understand why people want to see it. And, and there's all sorts of mental health benefits to that, perhaps. But um, actually, uh, I think seeing it as a dynamic place that's full of other life forms. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's earlier human beings, lots of generations, but there's also, as you say, squirrels and birds and insects. Um, and they all have their own kind of understanding mm. of, of where you happen to be so so that's part of the book as well um you know what what, what other life you might, <laughs> you might become aware of if you're just kind of just out for a walk yeah. and listening and looking yeah and it's great for the old mindfulness as well actually sort of stopping and paying attention to the sounds and the smells of the old countryside yeah. um yeah and no, i remember I, I spoke to uh the, the president of the cla and a lady called victoria Brilliant, and she had that sort of amazing quote which i think about a lot which is that the countryside is not a museum it's a it's a workplace you know and actually understanding that makes you realize that like you said it does it does change all the time things are not always going to be the same um so i guess my next question would be apart from the places you've discussed in your book where's your sort of favorite spot in the countryside oh, that it's really difficult mm. to choose to choose you can choose one. more than one if you'd like yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm very fond of the Lake District, which is a very obvious yeah. obvious one to choose. There, there are parts of Scotland I'm very I'm very attached to. Um, so I've got got lots of favourites actually, um, but they, it's it's more sort of areas I would yeah. say rather than particular specific sorts. spots. I mean, I'm actually very fond of the Solway Firth, which I do talk about. Yeah. There's a couple of chapters on on that, um, partly because it's such a it's such a strange, um, strange place. It's very, very unlike anywhere else. I think. Well, what, um, what it's, makes it's it where so strange? My father grew up. Um, well, I think again, the atmosphere is very, very unusual, um, and 
because it's quite it's quite flat on the Cumbrian side, mm. and the way the the way the water moves is incredibly exciting. But quite often you can be up there and not not really see any anyone else, um, and it's not one of the kind of obvious uh, beauty spots. Um, and and it's got a very interesting history as well. Um, so so I'm I'm fond of the Solway Firth. Um, I I, I find that different areas of the country have their own distinct atmosphere Hmm. and i think that's partly to do with the physical properties and the kind of climate Hmm. uh but also to do with with the history i think you know something that's built up over over centuries gives places a different a different character and and that's partly why i'm interested also in in much newer things like the humber bridge which is a very unlikely kind of um uh feature to be thinking about in a way uh, but but that strikes me as you know again very interesting and very much it's kind of its own place yeah. it's uh, you know it, it's neither yorkshire it's not lincolnshire it's not in the water it's above it but it it's not really in the sky either so somewhere like that that has just been constructed you know how do, how does that fit into our sense of you know of of, of landscape and, and and the british landscape it's, it is constantly changing and you know different generations are, are creating new things and, mm. and and if you compare that then with the solway where now all we see of the viaduct that went across the solway for about 40 years we just see some you know some rusting pillars um and, and again they're sort of speaking to each other very good well i think that's that's a, a very good spot to leave the discussion. We don't want to give away too much of the book. It is out now, or it certainly will be by the time this podcast is post, uh, posted. So I would highly recommend that you go and buy it. Fiona, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a really, really interesting talk. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much for, for your time and your interest in the book. It's a real privilege. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much and thank you dear listener for joining us yet again uh, I will be back next week many many thanks as always to Toby my amazing producer and editor thank you very much and goodbye <laughs>